Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website at isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to follow the science on marijuana. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. There is no safe drug supply unless it comes from a legal pharmacy. If you are around anyone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for a research conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev. Let's discuss the research it takes to get FDA approval for a new drug. New drug approval requires extensive research. Step one, in the lab. Step two, preclinical trials on animals to answer safety questions. Step three, clinical research on people with placebo-controlled comparison. Step four, FDA review. And step five, post-marketing continued safety monitoring. The story of Romanabant, a cannabinoid receptor drug, is interesting and provides important lessons. Romanabant was the very first cannabinoid receptor blocker and approved to treat obesity in Europe back in 2006. The theory was that stimulating the cannabinoid receptor increases appetite. That's why Marinod, low-dose THC, is approved to treat age-wasting disease. Think of getting the munchies while using low-dose pot. So, if stimulating the CB1 receptors increases appetite, blocking those receptors should decrease appetite and work as an appetite suppressant to treat obesity. The Europeans were using Renanabont with successful weight loss. Renanabont was submitted to the United States Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, for approval in 2005. Two years later, the FDA came back in 2007, reviewed all the data, and stamped a big red reject on Romanabant. They acknowledged the weight loss in the treatment group, but expressed concerns about the serious adverse side effects that included depression and anxiety. A significant number of people quit taking the drug because of the neuropsychiatric side effects. There were reports of suicidal ideations in the treatment group compared to placebo, and two people sadly died of suicide with renabinant. Side effects included cognitive issues, tachycardia, and concern about teratogenic effects. The United States refused to approve renabinant in 2009, and then the Europeans pulled their approval as well. It may be better to be overweight than suicidal. The FDA review saved lives by not approving a drug. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hello, Dr. Lev. I love working in the emergency department. I'm just getting started in my career, and every day there is something new and interesting. My name is Shay Villate, and I am a paramedic student and technician in the emergency department. 
I was excited to learn about your High Truths podcast. Um, many people utilize marijuana as a medicine. Uh, why don't we have more evidence-based cannabis medications on the market? Thank you, Shay, for your question. It is indeed so fun to work with you and experience the bright outlook you bring on entering the medical profession. It's infectious. You are bright and eager, and I have no doubt that you'll be very successful in your career. To answer your question, we're going to have a conversation with a cannabinoid research expert, Dr. Jacqueline Bainbridge. She's a doctor of pharmacy and professor at the University of Colorado Anschwitz Medical Campus. She conducts research on the effects of cannabinoids for various medical conditions. To learn more about Dr. Jackie Bainbridge, check out the High Truth show notes. Dr. Jackie Bainbridge, welcome to High Truths. How are you? I am great, and it's great to see you again. The last time we saw each other was at the United Nations in Vienna, and that was uh, a lot of fun and uh, first experience kind of learning about drugs around the world. I know. It was a first experience for me um, as well, and it was um, eye-opening, I thought, and it was a ton of fun. Yeah. And uh, I remember you because you were wearing those great Prada shoes. It's because there was a lot of walking around and um, we needed comfortable shoes and and you had them. Yes, I do. (laughs) In two colors. (laughs) In two colors. Yeah, I went. That's what I did after leaving the United Nations is looked up Prada boots. Um, But so, uh, Jackie, I want to talk today about cannabinoid research, what's good research, the research that you're doing. But first, let's start by having you introduce yourself to our audience so we get to know you, besides that you wear nice Prada boots. (laughs) (laughs) And you go to Fashion Week. (laughs) Yes, yeah. Yes. Paris Fashion Week is a must for everyone. Um, At least once. I used to say um, running a marathon should be on everybody's um, list and to do it at least once. So now you can add to that list Paris Fashion Week. So um, just a little bit about me. So I'm a um, PharmD. Uh, I started out at the University of um, Colorado uh, a number of years ago in critical um, care medicine. So I worked in the ICU for a number of years, decided when I grew up that I probably didn't want to um, be under somebody else's, um, somebody else making their, my schedule for me and not allowing me to do or participate in um, any type of clinical research, which I love doing because you just learn so much about a new product or a product on the market um, when you're looking at it very, um, you know, through a microscope, really. Uh, to see how that product is actually going to perform or their side effects, drug interactions, that sort of thing, which I love to do. So I joined um, the, I went from the hospital side to the university side, um, and I'm now a professor uh, in the Department of Clinical Pharmacy and also the Department of Neurology, since that's my area of um, interest is uh, neurology and also um, cannabis uh, research. Um, So, and I'm also the vice chair of research um, in the Department of Clinical Pharmacy and the SCAG School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences. Um, So that's a little bit about me. And I've I've actually funded my own uh, faculty position and um, I have two fellows currently and I've had residents in the past of research assistants that 
um, mainly have been funded through clinical research. So I really got um, interested uh, in research um, when I was on the hospital side, but then also on um, the university side, and especially when I had mouths to feed. Um, it was a good way to do that. And also it gave young people who wanted that experience for a clinical um, neurology research fellowship to um, actually participate in that. And then they can go on with that postdoctorate um, training. So, um, and we have several clinical trials going on right now, uh, currently in, with cannabis. Um, and we're, we're gonna get to that. Okay. Um, definitely wanna hear about uh, yeah. your amazing research. Um, and uh, interesting that uh, you do research out of Colorado and on cannabis. Is there a coincidence there? Because <laughs> uh, Colorado is known for its cannabis. Yeah, this is very true. Um, and, and that's such an interesting point. So, right. So we were one of the first uh, states to um, have uh, uh, medical and um, recreational um, cannabis, as you know. Um, and it, it seemed like a lot of our patients uh, in neurology would tell us that they were trying cannabis for some of their symptoms uh, in different areas uh, in neurology. So, um, and I think legalization really kind of helped a little bit with this because it made it a little easier for patients to tell practitioners what they were actually doing. Whereas prior to that, I, you know, Sometimes they would tell us, especially in epilepsy, um, but other conditions, many, many times they wouldn't really open up. That's and, that's absolutely true. That's something that legalization did is um, make uh, patients more honest with their doctors. They're not like trying to hide that in right? general. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Denver is a great place for a uh, beautiful place. I was just visited recently for uh, Johnny's Ambassadors. There was a conference there. Um, the only problem I had is when I got my rental car, it smelled of weed and I didn't like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that is really a problem um, here in the Mile High City um, because everything smells like um, cannabis. So, and, and, you know, when we were in Vienna, um, I thought it was really nice because, you know, just coming from Colorado, it's like, wow, the air, it doesn't smell, <laughs> you know, we don't have that, you know, that cannabis, um, secondhand hate. smoke effect. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, there, there's also, again, an, very much an acceptance of, of marijuana in Colorado, uh, in Denver. And I'm wondering if that affects your research in ways where there's pushback and any negative reporting on harms of marijuana. Um, and, you know, it's that's a very interesting question. Um, so when you talk about recruiting subjects for a clinical trial, I mean, obviously, we can't have them using cannabis outside of the trial. So we're always having to um, look at testing prior to enrolling them into a clinical trial. So, um, you know, what whether or not, you know, they're eligible or not, or are they going to fall off the wagon, um, that sort of thing. And in most of our early studies, you actually wanted patients who had some exposure 
to cannabis because we didn't want them having a lot of negative adverse effects uh, in the clinical trial. So um, I don't know if that quite answers your question, but um, just in terms of recruiting patients, um, it's always a challenge because you need them to abstain from um, what patients are actually um, getting from a dispensary um, yeah. in um, Colorado. Wow, that's really interesting because we know that some people ha- are predisposed to have negative effects from cannabis, like psychosis, and they, you know, they try it once. It's like, okay, I'm never doing this again. And other people who don't, and like, oh, this is great. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. if those studies you get that selection bias. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, and it is a selection bias. I agree. And but when I, what I was thinking about the pushback is, um, we did a our institution at Scripps was part of a drug surveillance, uh, along with different hospitals across the country to see what drugs are, are are coming up in the emergency departments. And I noticed that University of Denver's hospital, you know, had no marijuana. And like, how could that be? And that's because they purposely took it out of their drug screen, which I thought was very irresponsible, you know, political versus clinical decision for hospitals and doctors not to be able to make the right diagnosis. And that's what I meant by like, you know, are they trying to hide the negative effects? One way to hide it is just, oh, we're not going to test anyone in any hospital. (laughs) Right, 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 right. And that, you know, that is, um, that is true. So, and even uh, what I recently heard is that even healthcare um, practitioners now are not going to have to, or they don't get in trouble if they were found to be consuming the product right. because of the legalization. So I think that is kind of a workaround. Um, and I think we're also seeing that maybe in traffic accidents as well. So um, even though they're trying really hard to get that kind of um, figured out, you know, what's what's realistic, just like with alcohol, um, how should they be testing? When should they be testing? What what's positive, what's not positive, because we know it hangs around in the system. Uh, Marijuana does for a long period of time. And so what do you call a a DUI um, kind of thing? So, you know, trying to- Wow, it's impactful what you just said. Do we want our doctors to be high when they're treating you? Yeah. I don't, I don't. (laughs) Or pharmacists, right? Or pharmacists. Um, So Shay is a- new EMT student starting his career in medicine. And he has a question that that was perfect question for you. He says that many people claim that marijuana is medicine. uh, And why don't we have more evidence-based cannabis medications? So I thought that is a perfect question for you. It is a perfect question. Um, And a lot of um, the research that is currently being done We have to use specific products, especially if you're at a large institution like the University of Colorado. So we can't use what people are actually getting from a dispensary. Um, So we can't tell them to to go out and bring us something. We can't test it to say, you know, this is how much THC or CBD is in that particular product Um, because you can't bring it onto campus. So there's so much red tape in getting um, all of this research up and going. So I I can tell you that with um, what we're doing now, so most of our supply has to come from NIDA, which which is fine, but then it's a supply and demand thing. 
Um, so they only have so much because they're dependent on what the University of Mississippi is growing. So the farms are growing um, and what product they have available um, at the time. Well, that's getting a little better because um, the FDA uh, is now working with uh, the I, um, NIH and NIDA uh, and DEA to, um, there are several companies now that are actually um, able to have their product run through NIDA and it's approved um, product that we could actually use at the university. So yeah. Very interesting. Difficult. We ha I had a really interesting podcast I recommend for anybody with Dr. Mahmoud El Soli. Yeah, yeah. Um, he is um, the guy who grows the marijuana um, and and sells it to the NIH and NIDA for testing that comes to you. And um, the the steps that he has to go through uh, to make sure that there's no contaminants. He basically has to sterilize the plant. The things has to go through various controls to make sure what he sells is exactly, you know, five, you know, milligrams or what, what, whatever percentage he is. Um, I even asked him to do any of the dispensaries anywhere else in the United States that's commercial go through um, the processes he does. And there, there isn't nowhere in America is, is the product uh, like what you're using for research. Right. And he is just such a wonderful person and he has really been, um, my right-hand um, person in all of the research that we have going on, because that's where I get um, our product. And he's become, you know, a very um, close um, colleague and friend, because every time I have a hard time compounding um, one of his products, I just pick up the phone and say, all right, <laughs> you know, can you, can you help me get this into solution? Or, you know, what do you think about this or that? And, and, you know, his, his regulations are changing all the time as well. So getting more stringent and, and whatnot. So that's why we don't have more research. Now, um, is, is that a problem or is that a good safety measure? What do you think? You, th you think you mentioned, oh, people can't just bring in their product and use it. Do you think that that's a good idea or a bad idea? You know, I think that there needs to be, um, there needs to be a balance. Um, uh, and so I understand because we're administering the product on campus. So you can't just bring, you know, a 90% THC product, right? Dabs or something, you know, into the university, you know, into the clinical trials research center um, and have people just, you know, just high um, out of their minds. So, um, and, and I get that. And you don't know if you can get that same product again. And you don't even really know what's in that product, which is the problem. Mm -hmm. So what I really like about the regulations that we currently have is I know what I'm, I know when I get from, um, you know, uh, Mahmoud, I know that I know exactly what I'm giving our patients. I know when we're giving patients at the dialects exactly what the patient is actually getting. Um, and I have comfort in that because I, I don't know how I would feel about giving a product that I didn't know exactly what was in it um, to a consumer or a patient. And then, and then the compounder is, how would you study that? If you don't really know what's in the product, how do you know what effect you're actually getting? Yeah. You, you mentioned compounding several times. What do you mean by that? How do you compound um, these joints for your research? What does that mean? 
So, so one, uh, one of our clinical trials is using a volcanic vaporizer um, and that uses flower material. So, you know, from NIDA, we get a placebo or um, a medium grade THC product. And that's just what people normally think of as rolling into a joint, but we put it into a volcanic vaporizer. So we get around the combustibles and the health issues with smoking. But then we have a crude product that we also get from NIDA. So that kind of looks like, I mean, it's dark. Um, it looks like an oil, like, but it's the consistency of like Nectella um, a bit. So difficult to deal with. And I compound that into an oral solution um, and, and generally try and mask some of the flavor of the cannabinoids that are in that food product. Um, so, so we're compounding the, the crude product, but then we're also separating out the um, flour um, product. Okay. And then, so you're using different ways on patients, not just smoked or vaped or, or oral. Correct. Um, that you're giving. Correct. So you're, um, when I met you, United Nations, your presentation was improving access to controlled drugs, cannabis for legitimate medical research and use. So I want to kind of talk about your presentation and share that with our audience. But first is, what is legitimate medical? Like, what does that mean? So in, in my mind, in my um, interpretation of that language is really um, to have a known um, symptomatology that you're treating and you have a product that you know exactly what's in it. So um, again, just having that safety measure and that confidence that you know exactly what you're giving um, is really is really what is in the product. It's not just the entire plant, um, but exactly what's in the product. All right. So legitimate medical means you're having a symptom and then you're having a medicine that uh, that is that you know exactly what's in it and what you're taking. Yes. Right? And so uh, the, the issue is so medical marijuana means people take, they feel pain, they have insomnia, and they take an edible or smoke a joint. Is that medicine? Does that meet that definition? Um, in my opinion, no. So I'm setting you up. I know. So also, <laughs> so also swinging around in that. And, um, I should have been a lawyer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Is that we would actually have cannabis um, as a legitimate product that's gone through clinical trials. So randomized controlled clinical trials um, and has an FDA approved indication. So like Epidiolex, which has gone through um, all of those clinical trials, and we've studied it in different patient populations and looked at drug interactions and um, endpoints, adverse effects, that sort of thing. So yeah. in my opinion, and, and going back to just having somebody go to a dispensary and get something to take for pain, going back to exactly what is it that helped with the pain, and you need the clinical trials or the research to actually prove that what they were taking actually did work for the pain. So right. not just case reports or, you know, a handful, a cohort. Um, or how I feel. 
an N yes. of one, you know, <laughs> this helps yes. me. And um, that's what we currently have. That's what most of the states are using um, yeah. for that basis. So medical marijuana. Right. I feel like the word, you know, I'm sensitive to that because there's a lot that goes into becoming a medical doctor and for you as a, as a pharmacist. And the word medicine has been hijacked by uh, by the cannabis industry. So everybody's like, this is my medicine. And it's like, really, we don't, you don't have any other things that, you know, comes from a legitimate pharmacy that's, that's treated in that way. Right. And also the term self-medicating, I'm self-medicating. So I'm using my heroin or my fentanyl or my methamphetamine. Uh, that's not a, that's not a medicine. Right. Right. Yeah. All right. So uh, steps that we need to take to develop more real uh, cannabis-based medicines, the kind that you as a pharmacist and me as a physician would feel comfortable um, uh, giving that follows the standard of medical care. Um, and there are some FDA-approved cannabis products. But what steps are we taking or should we be taking in order to make more um, cannabis-based medications? And maybe we should clarify or if you explain that what cannabis medications is, that's not smoking a joint, right? It's it's a, it's a, what we traditionally think of as a medicine. Correct, correct. So yes, an FDA approved um, product with a legitimate um, indication is what I would call um, a medicine, a uh, traditional type um, medicine. So, I, you know, I like the idea that we have um, a, a plant derived um, product uh, that is purified. And again, we know exactly what's in it. So when you take a teaspoon of this liquid or oral solution, you know exactly what you're getting in terms of the cannabinoid content. Um, you know exactly what that is. Just like if you were taking um, a cough medicine and you would take a teaspoon of that, you know exactly what you're taking in that teaspoon. And I think that's really um, important. And I think that's the safe way to do um, business. We also have cannabis products um, on the market um, currently that are also synthetic-based um, THC products. Um, so, you know, a little bit different. We've had those on the market for a number of years um, and, you know, useful for nausea and vomiting. And so pain. are you talking about like Marinol? Yes. Yes. So, Sorry. Marinol. So, so um, Marinol is, is pure THC, but it doesn't come from the plant. It comes from a lab. It's made uh, synthetically. Correct. A laboratory. So it's synthetic, um, a synthetic type product. So been on, been on the market for a long period of time. So. That's great. So what are the steps that it takes to, to create such medications? Well, the steps um, are pretty rigorous and, you know, it's expensive too, but, um, you know, you have to start with preclinical data. Do you, do you have a sense that this would work? Does it work in an animal model? Um, then you move into phase one, two, and three um, uh, clinical trials. So um, you're looking at healthy controls to make sure that patients tolerate the product. Um, and then you move um, uh, to back up that phase one uh, type data. You, you back that up with um, further phase one and phase two. So moving now into symptomatology, treating the disease state or um, a condition or symptoms of a disease state. 
Um, and then you move into phase three where you're allowing patients to have uh, more clinical uh, sequelae in addition to what you're treating or more medications on board. They don't have to be de novo or on no other medication uh, besides that particular product that you're testing. And then you could, um, and then they usually, uh, a company will go to the FDA for approval, um, but oftentimes will follow that product uh, through post-marketing surveillance into phase four, just to see if there's a signal that there may be um, additional problems with um, a product. And that's all pharmacovigilance, um, essentially. So, and, and we follow, um, I mean, that's the pathway to get a drug to market. You end at phase three but we're always really looking for uh, reports of adverse effects with medications um, even after it's approved and on the market. So it's a long journey. Right. Um, but it, 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 it's meant to uh, have safeguards for consumers, right? Correct. So efficacy, did it, did it do what you wanted it to do? And was it safe? So did patients tolerate it? Were there adverse events? Were there, um, were there drug interactions? You know, what do you have to look, look for? Who do you actually um, use this medication in? Um, that, that sort of thing. So it really backs up safety and efficacy of our product. One of the, the stories I shared with our listeners at the beginning of this podcast is a story of Rimanabant. Um, which is a CB1 agonist that was used to uh, for weight suppression. It was approved in Europe. And, you know, why is the FDA so slow? And the American system of approving of drug is, you know, annoying and cumbersome. Um, but it turns out that the drug was causing, you know, significant psychiatric symptoms. Um, and the, the FDA put its foot down and would not approve it. There was even a suicide in the control treatment group. Um, and eventually their Europeans backed down and took it away. So I think, you know, that's one of the lessons of, of being careful. Right. I agree. I agree. Yeah. One of the things that you had in your presentation, you talked about cannabis uh, addiction risk. Do you want to share some of that with us? Um, sure. So I, you know, everyone, um, consumers, you know, um, oftentimes don't even realize there's a difference between THC and CBD, number one. Um, and they all think because it's a natural product um, that it's safe. Uh, and we know that there are many natural products that can can be lethal um, in the situation. So, um, I, so that, uh, you know, if you look at Cedar is actually an addiction um, uh, center or facility that's on our campus, on the Anschutz campus. And if you if you just go through the halls there, you find that many people are in there because of an addiction to um, cannabis. Uh, so it is a real problem, and this is this is even one of the places that I wonder if we're really being honest um, with consumers, what that risk usually is. Um, and so the last numbers I've looked at, it looked like it was in the teens, uh, high teens, uh, maybe 
higher than that in the adolescent group, which are exactly the people you don't want to consume cannabis. Um, but I recently heard, um, speaking to um, a physician uh, from Brazil, that our numbers are really looking more like 30% for the addiction rate uh, with cannabis. That's a, that's a high number. You know, when I was, when I was working in the hospital and I had to, you know, decide, you know, you have a laundry list of side effects that, um, that is in the package insert of a medication. And I had to pick and choose what I was going to talk about with a patient. And my cut point was always 10%. If I see something that's 10% or higher, those are definitely things I want to mention. So, I mean, when I hear 30% or even 18%, 20%, 12%, those are really high numbers that people just don't, consumers don't really understand um, the risks. And, and I think that we have so much advertising um, in Colorado that that it it makes it look, you know, safe and and it's legalized here. So isn't it safe? Like, why would my parents vote to have this legalized if it really isn't safe? So I think consumers don't get that message strong enough. And I think, you know, I don't think that we're really good at at talking about that and putting that information out there into consumers' hands because. Um, those numbers are really, really high. Yeah, you had a really nice graph about the cannabis addiction risk. And the one point that I, you know, stands out is that a daily user of cannabis has a 32% chance of addiction, which is the same thing as nicotine, as cigarettes, the right. same same risk. Um, mm -hmm. So that, that actually makes sense. So let's get to the specifics of your your the research so we can get to um, understand that better. So you explain, first of all, that who funds your research. You, you get that money from uh, NIH. Um, you get cannabis industry funding research. Um, uh, so that's an interesting question. A lot of our a lot of the current research that we have going on has been funded by the state of Colorado. So when, you know, people were. Um, all about the medical cards, a lot of that money um, went in back into research. So a lot of our research um, currently is funded by CDPAG or the state of Colorado. And that is our autism study, which is using Epidiolex. Um, we had a, a Parkinson tremor or PD uh, tremor study that was um, an oral solution that I compounded from, uh, from NIDA. Um, and then we have a back pain study currently going on. Uh, that was a plant material using um, uh, plants uh, or the volcanic vaporizer in the using plant material in the volcanic vaporizer uh, and crossing patients over with oxycodone or placebo. Um, and that study is kind of winding down and we're starting another study that is using the oral solution that I'm compounding uh, in different, um, in different strengths. So we'll actually have CBD, a higher THC and THC, uh, alone, uh, and a placebo, um, and where patients will be randomized. And that's all from, um, NIDA. Um, but then, and so that's all from the state of Colorado, but now I do have a new clinical trial that, um, I'm just starting with all the paperwork, but I finally did get it um, funded 
um, through BRC. So BRC um, is actually um, a company that is approved to um, distribute their products um, for research. So it'll be funneled through um, NIDA. So I'm really excited about that. Um, and this is the first time. Is that company a cannabis company? I don't mm -hmm. It is. Well, so they, they, they sell hemp. marijuana at dispensaries, no, but they're no, also no, no, funding no, your very, research. Very, very big distinction. <laughs> they oh, do okay. So it's a hemp company, but they've gone through the paperwork so that they're approved to be distributed through NIDA. So it's one of, there's like three or handful of companies. Um, so they're like uh, Dr. El Soli from Mississippi? Correct. Correct. But it's hemp. So that was the distinction um, for the university to actually allow me to accept um, money from them uh, is because they, they do not sell to dispensaries. Um, and it's more of a hemp, it's a hemp product. So less than 0.3% THC. Um, so they do not have high THC products and they do not sell to any dispensaries or um, consumer models. So it's really for the research side of things. Okay. Um, so they're not a company that sells to dispensaries. No. Okay, okay. Very big distinction. <laughs> um, so, well, so, so tell us, why is there, what's the big dis the distinction between um, you know, product that, you know, buying from a dispensary versus buying the, the, the NIDA NIH approved stuff for your research. So, um, a big, big difference. So again, you know exactly what you're getting when it's coming through or funneling through, um, NIDA dispensaries, wild, wild west have no idea. It's an unregulated, um, industry. So you really don't know exactly what, exactly what you're getting. Um, and also you don't, and, and you can control the product. You can control what goes into what you're giving to patients. And by control, you know, how many milligrams, what the potency is, what contaminants are in there. Yes, absolutely. So, but people who use marijuana, they don't realize that the government doesn't do that. Uh, when you buy product at the dispensary, they say, wait, but there's a label on it. There's a percentages. Um, um, and yet we're talking about the, you know, when you go to a dispensary, things are not regulated. And that, and that is so, so true. So, um, and in the beginning, when we first had all these dispensaries in Colorado, you could easily get a certificate of analysis. And we would always tell our patients to make sure that they got a certificate of analysis telling you that the product has been tested, um, what exactly worked whatever they tested for was in the product. Uh, but now we're seeing that fall off, um, really fall off the, the charts. So now it's really difficult uh, in some dispensaries to get a true certificate of analysis. Um, and a lot of the, a lot of the testing that's done is, is not great testing. So they're not really looking for all these heavy metals. They're not looking for uh, some of the pesticides um, that E. That coli, aspergillus, all the fungals. Absolutely. And so think if you're a patient that's immunocompromised and you're consuming those products, you're really setting yourself up for um, havoc and and even, you know, worse. So right. And I don't I don't think our 
patients or even doctors and consumers have no idea. They think, I don't know how many people have come to me and they have cancer and they say, no, I have pain. Shouldn't it be, shouldn't I use marijuana instead of opioids? Those opioids are terrible. Um, and, and I have to tell them, no, I'd rather you take opioids because you're immunocompromised. You're more susceptible to getting aspergillus and other infections. And the CDC even has a warning uh, not to use specifically, you know, flour products and people who are immunocompromised. Right. And that, that's a, such an important point. And consumers, again, don't, don't understand that it's a natural yeah. product. So I want you to take us through one of your trials so we can kind of like get a picture of what it's like. I don't know, pick your, like maybe the back pain one. Yeah. So you've got that. a back pain. You want to, uh, you want to study. So what's, what's the hypothesis? So the back pain um, study, obviously, is it comparable? Is the cannabis product comparable to an opioid, oxycodone? Um, okay. And we actually do, for that trial, so so money came from the state of Colorado, uh, then getting through red tape um, at the university, all the, all the hoops, all the committees, all the COMERB, so the IRB, Institutional Review Board, um, getting through all of these committees, it actually took us 24 months um, to get through um, all, all of the committees and all of the approvals that we needed, um, writing the IND, holding the IND, so approval of the product from the FDA, and then going through the DEA to get a research schedule one um, to actually to administer the products um, or prescribe the product uh, or cannabis, all of that just takes so, so long. And I actually went in um, as uh, I was initially going to be the DEA one holder, but being a pharmacist going in as a DEA one researcher holder was just another story. It was just, it was, it was too much. Um, it was, it was a big hassle. So um, because again, that was pharmacists prescribing DEA license, da la la la. We don't, that's not what we do, at least in the state of Colorado. So that was a, a huge hurdle. So we had to shift our DEA one holder to one of our um, physicians. Um, so, and then, and then it's getting all of your staff um, able to, you know, wrap their head around um, that they're doing a cannabis study. Um, I will tell you one of our patients, he looked at me and he said, when you were in pharmacy school, did you ever think that you would be counseling somebody on how to smoke weed? And I said, no. And he goes, and I never thought anybody would pay me to smoke weed either. But wait, um, take it, take us back. You have this theory. You're going to be comparing cannabis versus opioids for back pain. Is that right? Yeah. Correct. So you have two arms or is there a placebo? There's a placebo arm as okay. well. So we have so placebo, three arms. oxy, and placebo. Some patients are going to get opioids. Some patients are going to get cannabis and some people are going to get uh, a placebo for their back pain. Is that right? It's, a, it's actually crossover. So everybody will go through each arm. So okay. at one point they'll get um, one of the placebos and then active um, component. And then one visit, they'll get nothing. Okay. And then so each each person is gonna go through all three and they're gonna to have to right. rate their rate their their pain scale on the back pain, right? Yes. Okay. Now 
who are the patients? Who signs up like, hey, I want to do some research on on pot and my back pain? Um, you know, what are the patients? How do you get the patients and what are they like? Um, so the patients have been great. Um, a lot of them, they have the time that they can donate, right, for clinical research. Some of them feel compelled um, to contribute back, uh, you know, to clinical research. Um, all of them have been recruited from our um, back pain uh, or pain clinics um, at the university or, you know, other back pain um, clinics. So everyone had to have, you know, a, a MRI that said, yes, you've got this level of back pain or neck pain. Um, you mean MRI that shows disc disease or whatever? Yes, okay. exactly. So you have objective data. Um, so not subjective, but objective data. Um, and they have had this problem for a while. Some of them are on opioids and some of them are not. Those in that particular trial, those individuals had to come off of their um, opioids to, to come into this particular trial, or they had to have just a low level. So a low opioid dose um, to be admitted um, into the trial. So not people who are on super high doses, uh, obviously you're not going to take them off and, um, you know, put, uh, recruit them into a clinical trial. So. Okay. And so now you have how many, how many patients? You know, I think we have about 75 patients and we're just getting ready to close that study down. So we don't have any preliminary results um, at this time, but um, it, it will be interesting. And we actually um, induced some pain uh, in the clinic. So we actually um, had a shin tester. Oh, so wait, this is fascinating, fascinating. Okay, so you got 75 people and I'll like, let's pretend I was one of the patients. Uh, take me through my experience. So um, obviously we ask you a bunch of questions, right? For signing that consent form, letting them know exactly what we're doing. Um, and then we do multiple levels of testing. So sobriety testing, um, if you were being pulled over uh, and someone or the, the police officer wanted to know if you were uh, consuming um, alcohol or another substance, uh, could you complete these tests? So walk a straight line, touch your nose, um, balance issues, um, that sort of thing. So, but we, you know what the 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 thing that we learn from our DRE experts, our officers who do those testing, is impairment for alcohol, like walking a straight line, putting your finger on your nose, and impairment for marijuana is very different. Impairment for marijuana is not being able to remember things. Like they, people on marijuana can put their finger to their nose, but if you tell them, put your finger to your nose, scratch your head and turn around, it'll be like, okay, did you say scratch first or turn around first? Or like, they cannot remember those simple instructions. It's a different type of impairment. Right, right. Uh, at, at the time when this clinical trial started, we didn't really know that. So, okay. so we would do the typical, typical sobriety testing, but then we also do memory testing. Um, as well. So just as part of it, um, as, you know, part of uh, all of that, of all of the testing. And then we do put, um, use a machine that puts a pressure against your shin. So 
could you feel this? Is it a different feeling or sensation um, from one visit to the next visit? So what, what is this? Is this crunching my shin? It It is. It's not crunching. <laughs> That's a bad one. <laughs> it's just putting a little pressure um, okay. on the shin. So we actually had it built uh, specific to this clinical trial. So um, very interesting, but okay. So at first, so I come into the clinic now and I'm on my, uh, and I don't know, right. Whether I'm on opioid day, placebo day or, or pot day. Right. Correct. And I come in three different times for each of those things. Yep. And, and are you giving, is this oral or vaped or what is, uh, this is the volcanic vaporizer. So what is that? Is that like a, a like an electronic cigarette? Um, no, it's actually so it's a it looks like a volcano, a volcano, and then you put the plant material in a reservoir, and then you put a bag on top of that that fills with vapor. So kind of like Jiffy Pop. Now I'm dating myself. Um, yeah. it, it plumes up like like a Jiffy Pop. Is it popcorn. would it work kind of like an albuterol inhaler? Well, it's much larger. So a volcanic vaporizer is big. Um, it's pretty big. It's cumbersome, but it it cranks up the um, the spark. There's an electronic spark, and it heats the material to beyond 300 degrees, so that it catches and burns, and then turns into vapor. And then the patient consumes the vapor. How, how do you do it? Is it through a pipe or? No, you inhale. So you put a little, you put a little um, connector onto the bag, and you have the patient um, breathe out and then breathe in, kind of like an inhaler. Okay. Um, and then they hold their breath and they exhale. Now, when that, uh huh. <laughs> All right. So I can see how patients are like, "What do I do?" Or do do they know like, "Hey, I got this. I know what to what to do." A or... lot of them. A lot of them have it. <laughs> a lot of them have used these in the past. Okay. Uh, now, interestingly enough, so setting up for this clinical trial, we actually had to um, specify one room in the clinical trials area. It had to be HVAC. Um, pull, you know, you have to be able to pull the vapor out or pull the smoke out or whatever you have. You have to be able to get that to the outside air. Um, so that was very difficult, right? Very expensive to have that occur uh, in our clinical trial research center, as well as where we store the product. That is also really um, expensive. Cumbersome. Yeah. yeah. So I I figured out how to smoke it. Are most of your patients experienced cannabis users? Um, For this clinical trial, they they had to be. Signed up for the study? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Now they had to abstain. So when they come in, we actually test them to see what we look for. We look for all different illicit um, right. agents. But I, I, I imagine that that's what causes bias and why, uh, uh, you know, some trials fail because you're selecting for people who have good experiences with yes. cannabis. Yes. Right. But some of them, it, it could be in the past. So it could have been 10 years ago. Right. So they didn't have to be currently using. Right. Um, so some of our uh, some of our patients actually have had 
um, negative. Effort. Oh, and then do I do a drug test before I enter the test? So you know that I'm really not using. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I, I take a drug test. I pass my drug test. I sign up for the study. Oh, am I getting paid? Um, they patients are getting paid. They're getting paid okay. a little bit of money, not much. Money. Okay. So I get, you know, that motivates to, 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 to be to good. All right. So smoke it. Then I wait how long before I do all the little testing? So some of the testing, some of the serum concentrations, because we are doing serum concentrations, which is great because then we have more objective measures. Um, but uh, they have to wait um, like 15 minutes, a half an hour, an hour. So the patients are actually there for a long time, six hours um, in the clinic. Okay. So, and then, okay. So then um, after smoking the product, you, did you say you draw blood? Mm-hmm. Okay. You draw blood and then you do all this, you know, uh, dancing and memory questions. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, and then you do, you come in three different days. One day is the placebo. One day is an opioid. Um, and one day is cannabis. And, and what, what, um, what potency are you comparing? Like how many milligrams of opioids smoked compared to how many, uh, milligrams of THC? Um, the, the oxy, um, varies. So if you have taken a certain amount, you know, clinically, that's what you were prescribed, then you move into a 10 milligram. If it's, if it's, you're on, um, if not, you get five milligrams of oxy and the cannabis is medium strength. So it's like 12, um, about 12%. So you compare five or 10 milligrams of oxycodone versus five or 10% of, um, of cannabis. Yes. All right. And then you're going to, then you, you do that with all your 75 people and now you're in the process of collecting and analyzing the data. So you don't have a sense yet of what, you know, what stood out. No, not yet. Soon, soon. Right. Oh, and then wait, and then you, you squeeze my shin and then ask the questions. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yes. Interesting. That sounds, uh, the, the patient interaction sounds kind of fun. Yeah. Um, it usually is. Now, all right, l- let's say you get the study for the back pain and you show that, um, you know what, cannabis works just as good as opioids. Um, what does that mean in real life? Does that mean, okay, everybody get your, get more, um, get more uh, joints from the dispensary? So what does that mean? It's going to be a, a good question. Uh, obviously, if some people have had problems with opioids um, in the past, maybe cannabis is a better solution for them. If that were um, what ends up at the end of this particular trial, um, I can tell you. But wait, you- wait, wait, Jackie, how can you say that when we spent so much time explaining how what you buy is night and day compared to what you get in the cannabis shops. And I know, and that's very true. However, we do have a few places where we can reliably send patients that <clears throat> we do know exactly what's in the product. So they're more scientifically. So w- w- tell me about those places. So they actually do, um, you know, have varying levels. They can extract their own products. They test it. They test for the heavy, heavy metals. Is this a dispensary? Uh, 
It's a dispensary. It is a dispensary, but it's more a dispensary like. So it's more scientifically based um, dispensary. So there's not many of them. It's more expensive, um, but you do get the certificate of analysis. It's a real certificate of analysis. Um, and they're um, more. But is this is this a pot shop that um, that sells all the little candies and the vapes and the dabs and the tinctures and the suppositories and all that? And then you can buy it. Does it look the same? Um, no, um, it they usually only have a few products. So they might have a gel cap. Um, usually they don't have plant material. Um, uh, so they only have a few products um, available. So they're more specialized kind of thing. Yeah, um, that's really hard for a doctor to do. Go to the, only this one shop in, you know. So right. I don't think that that's something that translates. That's the- very difficult. So one of our, another clinical trial that is for autism, we actually give patients um, a list, you know, of, you know, maybe like eight places that do that, that they can get a comparable product to what they just received in the clinical trial. Okay. So yeah. tell us a little bit about the autism style. Yeah. So um, the is autism, that one completed? So do we know the data? No, we don't. Nothing's really complete yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> so we don't know the data, but it's for behavioral abnormalities. Okay. So tell tell us about that one. That sounds interesting. So that one is actually um, Epidiolex um, uh, that we're looking at uh, and a placebo. Um, and patients do cross over and there's some patients that are on CBD the entire um, the entire time. And um, they, when you say they're on CBD, you don't mean the stuff that they're buying from the pot shots. You mean Epidiolex, right? Epidiolex. Okay. Yes, correct. So, which is again way different, right? I mean, there was another study recently of that if people buy CBD from whatever Amazon dispensary, there's a high likelihood of having heavy metals and other things, and you don't really know what you're buying. Exactly. Exactly. But your trial is completely, you know, from. Jazz Pharmaceutical Epidiolex. Epidiolex. So it's FDA approved. It's purified. We know exactly. Okay. What's in it. So there's so, not, that's not controversial, mm-hmm. right? If you, and right. what does the autism study, you're taking um, young kids with autism? Um, yes. So of varying ages. So I think up to, up to 18 in that particular trial um, and uh, looking really looking and assessing their mood. So like aripiprazole, which is a traditional um, medication that um, also has a labeled indication for um, behavioral abnormalities and autism. So it's kind of mimicking what those clinical trials actually did to see if we can reproduce um, that those results in, with Epidiolex or CBD. Interesting. So yeah. um, what's also finding fascinating is there's a lot of studies that show that THC can cause autism, that, you know, uh, um, uh, moms and dads who are using marijuana and have uh, uh, conceive a baby, there's more likelihood to have autism in those kids. So now you're giving CBD, the antagonist of THC, 
to treat the autism that was caused by the potentially caused by the THC in the first place. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) We are giving them CBD that's purified. So different than what you get from a dispensary. (laughs) Right. Okay. So again, the the thing that happens in our society, uh, after Warren, I even talked to um, Dr. Nora Wolkoff, who's like head of NIDA, when 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 uh, she says or you say, oh, there's so much potential in cannabinoid research, it's like, yeah, I don't have a problem with that. That's that's great. That's how new drugs and do, new developments happen. But what people here, politicians here, and and people on the street here is like, oh, okay, let me go to Amazon now and buy some CBD because it's good for my kids to have it's autism. And now they're giving CBD oil to to children, and it's like, oh no. Do you recommend giving CBD oil? to children with autism? Uh, no, no, <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> um, no. And especially again, if you're just going out and purchasing something from a dispensary and we don't have the clinical, we don't have the results yet. So what are, it, I'm interested <clears throat> that, you know, the parent parents who have children with autism are probably like, you know, desperate for solutions and why they participate in these trials. What's their attitude? Um, towards that? Do you feel like they're participating in these trials? They're, they're very hopeful. They're proud of their participation. Are they going out to the store now and buying the CBD? Do they understand the difference? They definitely understand the difference because um, that's what one of the jobs that we have. So I have my fellows are also involved um, and more so involved with the patient level um, than I am. But they, they definitely make clear that difference. And again, at the end of that trial, we give them a list of dispensaries or these, these more um, scientifically based dispensaries where they could actually obtain a product that's similar to if their insurance company will not pay uh, for epidiolites. So no, we don't recommend going out and just going to any dispensary because then again, just as we mentioned, we're not, we don't know about the pesticides, the heavy metals, the um, contaminants um, in those products. Wait a second. Is the issue that their insurance is not paying for Epidiolex and they have to pay out of pocket? Yes. So a lot of times that is a big deterrent um, from getting the Epidiolex product. So they can get a prescription for it. Um, now making sure that it gets approved through prior authorization or whatnot, since it's not in, in the I mean, it's a barrier, but you know, my, my husband, you know, my husband had a heart attack stroke. He has a issue of lipoprotein A and the insurance would not approve the Repatha, the, the drug that he needs to save his life. So am I going to go down to Mexico or buy it on the internet Yeah, <laughs> and maybe yeah. hurt him or, or live without it? if? Or, or pay. Right. So right. if you can pay, that's that's what that's what we recommend. But the if you can't pay, are people being said, well, I can't pay and my insurance won't have it, then then they're buying potentially, you know, arsenic. Well, not if they're going to the, the places that so how do we know? How does a consumer know? How do parents know? How do people know how to go to a, a good spot? Um, so I think the first thing to do is to ask the provider. Most of the time, the providers are not 
going to know unless they're involved in the research. Yeah. Doctors level. don't know that. I haven't, I don't know where to tell. So uh, they have to do a lot of the background research. So asking for those certificates of analysis, actually okay. taking the product that they purchase and look for um, an, a number like a, like an NDC number, but it's not an NDC number. So it's a uh, just a lot number that they have on the product and go back to the website and look up that particular product to see what's in it. And we have our patients do that for um, when they're buying a CBD product over the counter. Um, a lot of times, because it's an unregulated market, they find that there's a lot of THC in that particular product when they think they're just buying CBD. Right. Right. And people ask me, do I see any CBD poisoning in the emergency department? I'll say, I used to say no, but now I think I do see people who come in with anxiety due to CBD. But I definitely see a lot of people who think that they're taking CBD and they test positive for THC. Yeah, that's a yeah. that's a huge problem. Huge yeah. Problem. And then you're also doing, um, well, actually, all the things that you're doing. So interesting. What, what can you tell us about Parkinson's? Is there any, do any of your trials have results? Maybe we should, I could ask so like that. Our um, Parkinson, um, uh, we did finish the results um, and it was really found to not be better than placebo for Parkinson's tremor. Those individuals remained on their uh, traditional medications for Parkinson disease. Um, and, and then they took this uh, CBD product uh, that I was compounding um, to see if their tremor got better. And it really, um, we did not have a positive um, result for that okay. particular trial. Did it have a negative result? Um, there were side effects, that yeah. we saw, especially okay. in that patient population, um, being more advanced age, um, on more medications. Um, right. So, we did so many drug some, interactions, right? Drug interactions, hepatic, uh, liver function tests, uh, increasing, um, uh, so we did NGI uh, was the main things that we found. Um, Nausea, and vomiting, say, diarrhea. Mm -hmm. And and I will say that our when our trial first started, uh, patients were actually, um, our dose was too high. So we, um, after our data safety monitoring board reviewed the results, we lowered um, the dose of our CBD product. So how do you feel as a, a researcher when a study kind of fails? So I think that that, I would say that bombed, you know, like CBD and Parkinson's, like not a good idea. Um, I mean, right. I, uh, at least so for I, tremor, and um, for tre uh, you so. know, I think it's just as, just as good to get those results out there as a positive. Yes. Uh, I like um, to hear that you say that. I think that that's very yeah. helpful. It's good to know what doesn't work. Right. Oh yeah, absolutely. And what the problems were. Yeah. So, um, I, I think that's very helpful. And, you know, uh, um, yeah. So that's so Parkinson's and, uh, and what about what else? Multiple sclerosis was that with THC? Uh, that was, uh, Sativex. So, um, uh, GW Jazz. Um, and that those clinical trials have been put on hold because they did have negative results in some of their uh, phase three trials. So, but it is, it is, um, 
uh, it is licensed in many other countries. So it's a one-to-one CBD, THC, oral mucosal spray. Uh, and it does work fairly well for spasticity uh, in some individuals with multiple sclerosis. Um, however, I, I don't know what's going to happen with those clinical trials. because Wait, that's so fascinating because even the stuff published by the National Academy of Medicine says for multiple sclerosis, THC decreases your spasticity on a scale of one to 10, you know, mm-hmm. some small little amount. Right. But they never add the part where, yeah, but, you know, people became suicidal or whatever the side effects were. Right. Um, right. But, and so was this trial with for multiple sclerosis stopped? Was it kind of like the uh, uh, Ramanabond study? No, no. And so basically uh, with Sativex, um, it was that some patients didn't reach a statistical significance on the Ashworth scale. So they didn't have a positive result um, with their spasticity on one of the measurements. So we weren't halted. We never actually start started. So that's what they found from previous clinical trials. So it wasn't an emergency stop. Um, kind of thing, uh, which we have seen uh, in the past with other clinical trials, like you mentioned. Um, so it just, it wasn't uh, statistically significantly positive. So they put the clinical trials on hold, the ones that were going to kick off, start up. So the other really mo- common symptoms patients or people use marijuana products for is, is insomnia, not being able to sleep. I've had you know, a lot of people tell me like, oh, I, I just take a gummy before bed. Um, what is, what's the science say on that? Yeah, the science for insomnia is kind of interesting. So it looks more positive for CBD products than THC. THC, just like alcohol, you know, it'll put you to sleep, but then you get up um, again. So you have a, a negative effect, uh, which actually produces a, more of a habitual pattern. So you need to smoke more of the THC to go back to sleep. Um, and then you see that cycle happening over and over again. Um, so it looks like if anything is going to work for sleep, it's more positive on the CBD side. And it may be other minor cannabinoids. It might be a CBN that really is the product that is best for insomnia, but we need more clinical trials. Wait, so what do you mean by that? When you're testing CBD, you're, you're also including other cannabinoids or how do you? Um, it just depends. So, um, most of the clinical research that's out there for insomnia is more CBD. Uh, but there's some level of, um, you know, just little, maybe little positive, um, uh, reportings that uh, maybe it's a blend of CBD and CBN. So, I mean, we know that there are, you know, uh, so many chemical compounds in the whole- And CBN is just another cannabinoid? Cannabinoid, yes, yes, yes. So, um, and and it's interesting because we don't know what all the cannabinoids do uh, in the plants. And we, we know we have, you know, a handful of them isolated. Um, but we don't know exactly what they do. So for your family, friends, uh, relatives, colleagues who may come to you and say, Hey, I can't sleep. What do you recommend? What do you recommend as a (laughs) pharmacist who does cannabinoid research? Yeah. 
Um, I, I don't recommend that. I don't recommend a cannabinoid, actually. <laughs> Good sleep hygiene, uh, melatonin. Um, yeah, there's a really nice product that I recommend to people, which is called Palm. So it's L-theanine and melatonin um, for some. For some is that people. over the counter? It's over the counter. What's it called again? <laughs> Calm, C-A-L-M. Okay. Yeah, and it's like a, um, it's a powder and right. you just put it in hot water. So it works for some people. Okay. But you don't recommend the gummies at night or CBD oil? No, 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 because I mean, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother talk, right? So we know the bioavailability with the oral products. Um, we have to be careful with that. So, um, and, and the way the gummies are made, Again, well, talk, yeah, talk to us about the gummies. Why are why are why do you not recommend gummies? Well, I, so when the gummies are made, the gummies are preformed and then you inject, and it's usually THC that they're injecting. Um, so it depends. I mean, there are some CBD ones as well, but again, you could be getting pocket effects. So if you only think you're going to take half, you might get the half with you know with all the product in it, as opposed to half of the product. So it's, it's just tricky. Um, the dosing is tricky. And, you know, again, what product you're using is, um, is also, you know, what do you use? What, what do you recommend? That's so what. one of the questions I've been asked was, uh, we know the flower is nearly hundred percent of the time you have the contaminants, the bacteria or the fungal. If you're eating it, um, and that product is made by the flower that has, you know, E. coli and aspergillus or Klebsiella. Are you eating that bacteria or is it cooked and you don't, it's, it's boiled and you don't have that bacteria? No, you know, I'm not really, I'm not really sure. I think it's close days with the product and it depends on how the product was extracted. So there's so many extraction methods out there. So some of it decarboxylated and some not. And so, and some people are actually eating raw flour. So, which uh, that's again, another, okay. <laughs> another thing, but, and they may be getting some efficacy. So the, the other uh, research that you're doing, I thought was interesting is, is psilocybin. That's getting a lot of uh, press and, and states wanting to legalize it. Um, what is, what's science say on that? Well, we just dosed our first patients, um, our first patient with advanced cancer and mood changes. Um, so, uh, so we'll see how that goes. We're using 25 milligrams. Um, it's synthetic. Uh, and we do is it oral. It is. It is. And we have a, um, also a placebo, um, with that particular trial. So it looks interesting. It looks promising, but it has to be. I mean, it, you really do need um, to have somebody who knows what they're doing um, watching the patient. So a trip watcher, um, so to speak. So someone in the room with the patient um, in case there's a problem. For how long? Like eight hours. Eight hours. That's, all, that's a big a long thing. Time. Yeah. Eight, watching the patient for eight hours. And, and what's, what are you measuring? Is it pain, anxiety? 
So um, it's a lot of anxiety. Um, you want them to have an experience. So it's going back to really, you know, Native American or tribal, um, you know, very ritualistic kind of thing. So you want them to be able to manage their pain better, manage their diagnosis better. Um, however, you know, there are adverse effects. So patients, um, nausea, vomiting, psychosis, um, all, all of those, um, adverse effects, uh, we can see. So, so we're really hoping that patients have more of an acceptance, um, or a better acceptance and, and able to deal with their diagnosis and, um, their mood changes. Interesting. My um, my clinical experience, but I think it's also supported by research, is people who regularly use marijuana are have a really hard time managing their pain. So people come into the trauma unit, or you know, or uh, you know, whatever, break their arm, or have a laceration, or have an abscess, whatever it is that's a painful thing. Their proportion of pain compared to other people with the same injury is much worse. Um, they have a, a harder time uh, managing their pain. They would need more opiates um, uh, in in dealing with that adversity. Right. All of that. All of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, psilocybin, you're using it again. I'm probably asking you the same thing several times, but I just want to make clear people are listening. It's psilocybin. It, it's you know, you're using it for cancer patients. Should you now make it legal because people are using it for cancer and it could help cancer patients? So shouldn't we legalize it? Well, in, in Colorado, the wild, wild west, as you are also in the wild, wild west, um, we do have decriminalized um, psilocybin uh, um, laws. So in Denver, not every uh, suburb um, you can have a certain amount of psilocybin um, on your person. So um, I don't think it's a great idea because again, there can be adverse effects. Is someone going to get on top of a building if they're having a bad trip and jump off, you know, think they can fly, all of those things. There are those people that is going to happen. So, um, and no, I don't think it should be legal. <laughs> I think, you know, let's see what the science tells us. Let, let's go with that. Let's see what the science tells us and make um, determinants based on science. Yeah. So, At the Johnny's Ambassadors Conference, what Laura Sachs uh, held in, in Colorado, one of the speakers had uh, a slide of the Wright Brothers plane. And on um, the plane showed that, you know, propeller not in the right place and the wheels not in the right place and, you know, all the engineering. And it's like, really, do we want to make a fleet of these airplanes before the science and technology? We really put the, the, the um, you know, cart before the horse. Yeah. And, and I think we've done that actually a bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so conclusions. What's your ad ad advice as a researcher? Um, I, I think that research should be uh, a little easier to um, to do good science, to produce good science. Um, and I think that 
consumers should know that that what we're using in our clinical trials is really not the same as you can get from a dispensary because you don't know exactly what you're getting, um, what you're really putting in your body. So um, in terms of the research side, I wish it was a little bit easier, a little less red tape, uh, but I understand it. The universities get federal funding and so you can't compromise um, other federal funding for using a scheduled on product. If you could fix the whole situation, what, what would you do? Uh, just to have more companies like, um, uh, you know, like uh, uh, BRC, uh, so um, biopharmaceutical research company. So just to have more companies um, that have gone through all of the paperwork to get their products, you know, selected and their companies selected and knowing that that what they're producing is really what they're producing um, so that that we have more options for clinical trials, more right. product options. So that's great. I definitely support research, support the FDA process of keeping us safe yeah. and um, you know, and being transparent about warnings and advice to patients, whether you know whether it's a medicine or you're getting whatever stuff from dispensaries, People should have the right to know about what what's in their products and and the side effects that they may be experiencing. I want to say thank you to Shay. Thank you so much for um, your question and uh, you know your cheerfulness in the emergency department. You have a great career ahead of you. And Jackie uh, Bainbridge, thank you so much for the research that you do, for joining us, bringing us high truths, and uh, bringing us. Uh, you actually do bring high truths in your science. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure and lovely meeting you. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, doctors educating on the harms of marijuana. Visit isaacone.org, that's I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to view their library that translates medical journals for public understanding, listen to their speaker series, and follow the science on marijuana. High Truth producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths.